Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash artcurious for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Listen up. World War II was the bloodiest, biggest, and most destructive war of all time, decimating entire countries and taking the lives of millions. And as we have learned over the last 10 episodes of the Art Curious podcast this season, art was affected and used in many different ways during the war. Art was used to document the experience of soldiers in battle, created to shape public opinion, values, and inspire the war effort, and to fight the enemy. It was a failed dream of Adolf Hitler, leading us to ask how art could have changed the course of history. And it was a victim in many ways, destroyed, looted, or impossibly altered during the course of events. But after the war ended in 1945, and the dust settled throughout Europe and other theaters of war, the effect of war on the art world lessened, and the connections between the two softened. Right? Actually, that's not what happened. And the effects of the Second World War are still being felt throughout the art world today. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, or lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today, in the last episode of Season 2 of the show, we are looking at the long-lasting repercussions of World War II on the art world, for the bad and for the good. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. In this episode, we're looking at both the short and longer-term repercussions of World War II on the art world. But as you'll hear, even events and actions that occurred in the years immediately after the war are still affecting things today. So things get a little blurry, but let's go ahead and begin by talking about those most immediate effects. As we discussed in previous episodes this season, particularly episode 26 about the Fuhrer Museum, our call back to the Amber Room in episode 27, and episode 29 about the Monuments Men, art was caught in the line of fire, sometimes literally, and definitely metaphorically. The way that this has had the biggest effect is that many works of art were looted or outright destroyed during the war. And in terms of simply the sheer number of items of cultural value that were displaced during the span of World War II, it is almost certain that this was the most dangerous war ever for art, as well as people. It was that destructive. We know that Nazi forces frequently seized works of art from museums, galleries, and private collections, many on the order of Hitler, Goering, or their lackeys. But along the way, some Nazi soldiers and lower-level associates began hoarding and stealing works of art for themselves, too. Take, for example, the story that broke in 2012 of a newly discovered hoard of art treasures, more than 1,280 paintings and drawings in total that had been hidden away in the apartment of one Cornelius Gurlitt, the son of a prominent Nazi-era art dealer who secreted away works by Honoré Daumier, Auguste Rodin, Henri Matisse, Otto Dix, Pablo Picasso, Marc Chagall, and hundreds more. Many of these works may have come into Gurlitt Sr.'s hands as Nazi officials stole items for sale so that they could possibly pocket additional money. And somewhere along the line, this art dealer just ended up keeping the works of art with a sketchy past. 
But of course, it wasn't only the Nazis who did such damage. Even though the Monuments Men specifically created tools for Allied servicemen to easily identify churches, monuments, and other important works of art that needed some extra protection, that didn't mean that their efforts were always successful. For example, one of the most important paintings that heralded the beginning of modernism, a work called The Stonebreakers by Gustav Courbet, was destroyed when an Allied bomb hit a castle in Dresden, Germany, destroying everything inside much of which were paintings from other museums or collections that had been moved to Dresden for safekeeping, ironically. Talk about a major accident with a long-lasting outcome. We can never see one of Courbet's masterpieces ever again. We can only know it through tiny thumbnails on our Google image searches or in color reproductions in art history textbooks. And it wasn't just Courbet that was lost to the Dresden bombings. 154 other works of art were estimated as lost in that same terrible event. And those are just a couple examples. When the war finally came to a close, the Allies pulled together to draw up a map of Europe and basically divvied certain sections of it up for control and repair. Because of this, the looting didn't actually stop when the war stopped. As the Soviet Union swept through and about much of Germany and Austria, they took hold of art and redistributed some of these works throughout the Soviet Republic. Some things found their way into private collections in Ukraine or Latvia, while others became part of collections of major museums in Russia. Much of this looting went so under the radar that it wasn't until the late 1980s and early 1990s, with the fall of the USSR and the reunification of Germany, that the extent of Soviet post-war plundering really came to light. But there actually is a really good thing here. Ever since the Monuments Men began their work during the war, a huge amount of effort has gone into the repatriation of works of art. Every attempt has been made to locate the original owners of works of art that ended up in the mine of Althusay and elsewhere, creating this amazing community of individuals throughout the world dedicated to working together to get art back to where it belongs. While the Monuments Men and those associated with the MFAA, the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Program, toiled systematically for years after World War II to do this work, the epidemic of art theft and loss soon proved to be so big and far too big for even one organization to handle. So in the 1960s, an organization called IFAR was established in New York. IFAR, or the International Foundation for Art Research, was meant to bring light to issues of provenance, or the kind of family tree of an artwork, who owned it, where, and how long, and on and on until you are able to, in hope and theory, trace the ownership of an artwork all the way back to the artist him or herself, if known. It's a huge job. And you can imagine that when it comes to dealing with a stolen work of art without a nice and tidy paper trail, it's also considered a really, really hard job. But it's done a lot for the art world, and it continues to be absolutely critical today. In 1976, IFAR began publishing stolen art alerts and maintains an active art theft archive so that even if a work of art was noted missing as long as 80 years ago or more, we as a collective group can have access to tools to help identify that work of art and possibly figure out how to return it to its rightful home. Not that home in any way or any shape is easy to define. Art has long, long been involved in plunder. In the words of Jeanette Greenfield, a cultural property lawyer, art plundering in practice is, quote, ancient, timeless, and pandemic, unquote. 
but with the proper scholarship and research and documentation, hopefully, a lot can be done. And much of this process was made easier in 1990 with the establishment of the Art Loss Register in association with IFAR. The Art Loss Register is the world's largest database of lost and stolen art, antiques, and collectibles. And with every work of art that comes into a museum that's dated before the 1950s, for example, you can catalog it with the Art Loss Register to confirm that it wasn't a stolen or looted artwork from the war or beyond. It also goes a step further into working to confirm the legitimacy of works of art on the market. In a world that's full of crazy fakes and forgeries, which is another season for the Art Curious podcast to be sure, there's much that can be done to trace the provenance of a work of art and confirm its authenticity. Coming up after the break, a major geographical power shift in the art world following World War II. Stay with us. Boring and overpriced. That's what you can expect these days from 99% of watch brands out there. And the worst part is, you blend in and look like everyone else. Not me, and I hope that's not you either. That's why when I look to step up my game and stand out, I've turned to Vincero. It turns out that a nice watch doesn't have to cost a fortune, and you'll immediately see why when you visit Vincero's website. Watches that look and feel like this typically retail for over $500, while Vincero watches start at as little as over $100. I've been wearing the Eros Rosen Fog watch. It has this gorgeous rose gold face with a beautiful silver band, and it goes with pretty much everything I wear, both casual and when I want to step up my game and look a little fancier. And I can't tell you how many compliments I've received in the first few weeks alone. On top of all that, you can shop safely knowing that Vincero has over 5,000 five-star reviews, offers free first-class shipping, and has a two-year warranty. Don't just get a watch, get the watch. Visit getthewatch.net today to see Vincero's stunning collection. And if you use promo code ART, you'll receive 15% off on your very own Vincero watch. Go to getthewatch.net and use promo code ART. Expedited shipping is available. Get a Vincero watch today. Visit getthewatch.net. That's getthewatch.net. Welcome back to Art Curious. Another one of those major effects of the Second World War on the art world is kind of a two-parter and a bit of a long game, really. So follow me on this one. It originally started with the so-called European brain drain. The actual term for this phenomenon is human capital flight, and it typically refers to the emigration of highly skilled or well-educated individuals. Before and during the worst of World War II, many members of the intelligentsia of Europe sought refuge in the United States and elsewhere, especially those who were fleeing persecution of one type or another. Thinking back to our last episode on the Holocaust, some individuals fled because they were Jewish or gay or because they were socialists. This was certainly the case with Albert Einstein's relocation to the States in 1933, when he escaped Germany due to religious persecution. And when he became an American citizen in 1940, this European brain drain became our brain gain. See what I did there? Anyhow, the same thing happened with a lot of artists, not only or necessarily because of reasons of political or religious persecution, but because their art was considered too radical, too political, too degenerate. And so, they left during and even after the war, arriving in droves and with many settling on the East Coast. 
Individuals like Max Ernst, Marc Chagall, André Cortège, Pete Mondrian. Really, I could keep going. They all settled in New York especially. And while some, like Chagall, ended up returning in the late 1940s long after the war was over, others just stayed. This meant that a lot of the edgier avant-garde artists were finding the U.S. to be a more welcoming space for artistic expression and experimentation. And that openness, freedom of creativity and expression, combined with some very important factors, including a relatively unscathed countryside, a booming economy, and a skyrocketing population, all of this meant one very important thing. America became the epicenter of it all. And that especially included art. Certainly, it affected the very best in art education. Whereas Germany used to be the hotbed of teaching in and about the arts, the U.S. soon took the mantle here, with one of the top examples being the legendary Black Mountain College in North Carolina, just east of Asheville. Go Tar Heel State! The founding of Black Mountain College in 1933 coincidentally aligned with the rise of Hitler to extreme power in Germany, which led directly to the closing of the Bauhaus School of Art in Weimar, Germany by the Nazis. And, combined with the brain drain, this meant that some of the most influential people found their way, either as teachers or even as students, to Black Mountain. And it created this convergence of artistic creation and intellectual thought. One of the earliest and most important teachers at Black Mountain was Joseph Albers. He was offered a position at Black Mountain right at the beginning of the school's founding. And according to Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center, he arrived, quote, speaking not a word of English, and he and his wife Annie left the turmoil of Hitler's Germany and crossed the Atlantic Ocean by boat to teach art at this small, rebellious college in the mountains of North Carolina, unquote. Black Mountain was hugely influential in its own time and brought teachers in for both short-term and long-term teaching stints, not only from Europe, but also from other important U.S. cities. Teachers thus began this back and forth between Black Mountain and these major metropolitan areas, and so there was an ongoing spread of art and educational ideas throughout the country by way of these conversations. But we cannot overlook the absolute force that was New York. As the popular website Artsy notes in a brief article about the development of post-war American art, quote, While Europe began the process of dealing with immeasurable trauma, New York emerged as a center of artistic activity, challenging Paris as the center of the international art world, unquote. Innovation, celebration, collecting. New York was simply it. To be fair, a part of the dominance of New York during this time had to do with money. As it is now, it was then. And it was because of the wealthy American clientele living there who began supporting art with gusto at the beginning of the 19th century, and also because old money families from Europe were part of that European emigration wave, settling in New York too. And war-ravaged Europe just couldn't have supported or funded the arts in the same way that America could. But the shifting of the art world to New York first and foremost comes back to the art that was created there. Think of the rise of abstract expressionism in the 1950s. Almost no other art movement is as closely tied to a particular place. Ab-X was New York, and New York, therefore, was art. As a correlation to this, I want to remind us about one other thing. In the first season of the Art Curious podcast, we ran an episode that is one of my personal favorites, 
because the story is just so crazy and just so film-ready that I originally assumed it was fake news. But it is totally true. It's about how the CIA secretly funneled cash into modern art, especially the abstract expressionists, in order to fight the Cold War. That's episode 9, by the way, if you want to listen in. The government's support helped grow modern art in the U.S., and it did so to make an ideological stance. Modern art was free and unrestricted and could be abstract or could be art for its own sake. All of this and more because the USA was a free country without restrictions on creativity, whereas the Soviet Union sponsored social realism as a kind of propaganda. So this brings us to another one of the big after-effects of the war. Though art has always been used to express ideologies and opinions and has been closely tied to propaganda forever, it became both a weapon and a target in its own right in a way that was previously unimaginable. An example of how this is carried through even to today is the battle between conservatives and the National Endowment of the Arts, which reached its height in the 1980s with furor over exhibitions of works by Robert Mapplethorpe and Andre Serrano, for example. The NEA has long been viewed as the supporter of some of the most liberal and also decisive of artworks, and the controversy reached critical heights. And, with the constant threat of defunding the NEA still making waves even as of the recording of this episode, we can only imagine that art, weaponized for particular causes and demonized for others, will continue to be the norm, not the exception. Even with the expanse of nearly 80 years separating us today from the end of the Second World War, the effects of it on the art world are still being felt. Artists are still making artworks that are reflections of the post-war landscape, such as Anselm Kiefer and George Bozelitz have done. And the hard work of artwork repatriation continues to be in the news constantly, with our realization that there is still so much more to be done. In fact, it's getting ever more critical that the research into finding stolen works of art and sending them back to their rightful owners is completed as soon as possible. As reported by PBS NewsHour in 2016, Eric Lee, director of the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, said, quote, It's a question of justice, and it's becoming increasingly important that as we get further and further away from World War II because the original owners are dying, and even knowledge about collections is disappearing with each subsequent generation, unquote. This second season of the Art Curious podcast has been but a brief glimpse of the ways that art and war have intersected, and there are still so many more stories to tell. If you have heard any tales from grandparents or great-grandparents or any other members of your family talking about missing heirlooms or works of art, you can do something about it. You can report your story to the Art Loss Register or Germany's Lost Art Foundation or another similar organization. You can contact your local art museum for further assistance, and you can visit archives and libraries in an attempt to collect any documentation you might need to confirm your facts. And you can find links to these and other resources on our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. And if you don't have any claims to missing World War II-era art, you can still help the search by keeping abreast of reports about still missing works of art. The more eyes and ears, the better. And a way to ensure that the connections between art and World War II end up being ones of expression and healing, and that the negative ramifications come to a swifter end.
Thank you for listening to this final episode of the second season of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Research help is by Stephanie Pryor and social media help by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLite. AnchorLite is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, AnchorLite encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com and special thanks to AnchorLite for generously agreeing to fund our upcoming third season. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is totally tax deductible. So please follow the donate links at our website for more details and thank you. As always, you can go to our website for images, information, and all links to our previous episodes. And that site is artcuriouspodcast.com. Contact us there or email us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com. Also talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. We are already hard at work on our third season. We will be posting updates and release dates later this spring. Check back in a few months as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.